0: Welcome to Scores and Pours, the podcast where you learn about wine and
1: classical music, hosted by sommelier, Jill Mott, that's me, and radio host Emily Reese. Today we're going to talk about isolation, so people making wines or spirits in isolation. I'm going to talk about composers composing in isolation. Check out
0: patreon.com slash scores and pours for a full playlist and a wine list and consider supporting the musicians you hear by buying their music.
1: Hello, Jill Mott. I have four notes today. (laughs) I see that. Good day, Emily Reese. How are you? I'm great, thank you for asking,
0: and you? Uh, I'm doing very well, thank you for asking. I Granted, we... uh, we feel like sometimes we're in isolation because this little booth is so cute. Yes. <laughs> um, but we have the whole world around us, right? We live in the middle of a very urban area. And I imagine for a lot of composers, which we'll talk about, winemakers, distillers, the world over, it's a very inspiring atmosphere, lots of stimulus. At the same time, man, is it amazing getting out yonder into the bush? Mm-hmm. nature however you want to call it into somewhat more of isolation to compose or you know create your craft
1: yeah yeah it's a beautiful thing so i'll be talking about two composers who did just that one who did it for a lot longer than the other but still uh, some really amazing music written in very rustic conditions uh, in more modern times so it's it's fun to think about them and their relationship and adoration relationship to and adoration for nature, or of, or whatever, you know what I'm saying. They I, yeah. really loved being out there, and I think was really inspiring for them, definitely.
0: Yeah, my the producers that I'm going to talk about, and just a couple of experiences experience, because I'm going to narrate, you know, I'm going to talk a little bit about autobiographical stories of just getting out, getting to producers, and sometimes what that entails, um, and then showcase a couple of people um, that I think are really special, with wine, you know, it it kind of goes without saying, there's a lot of winemakers that are making wine where they grow their grapes, which, yeah, in some places like Temecula, California, comes right up next to, you know, basically the fringes of Los Angeles and stuff like mm, that, right? Yeah. But in most cases, the vineyards are, you know, they are very out in the middle of nowhere and hard to access. And you plug in a... Address and you get lost on your GPS, you know, because they're just so in in literally in the middle of. I was going to say God's country, but whatever you want to call it. And with wine, that's changed because now there are urban wineries like in the middle of Berkeley. There are a ton of wineries, and they get grapes from all over California. Uh, You know, they can still be great quality and make great wine, Um, but that's a whole just different setup. And you can. We're not saying you need to have a very rustic winery in the middle of nowhere, because you can obviously have, there are ultra-modern wineries in the middle of nowhere that are backed by gazillions of dollars, right? So, But on Scores & Pores, as you probably know if you've listened to this as episode like 700 or whatever, you know, we focus on almost always natural wine and almost always smaller producers um, Mm -hmm. of wine. Mm -hmm. So the people that we're going to talk about today are definitely
1: in the middle of nowhere. Nice. Where should we start? Well, let's start with music. It's been a while. Okay. Yeah. We're going to talk about Edvard Grieg, who is probably the most famous example of a composer who worked in isolation, basically. He and his wife had a summer home just outside of the city of Bergen in Norway. And if you... I mean, you're familiar with Norway being just fjords galore and just all this water with islands and little... Archipelagos and just all kinds of things jutting out. And that's kind of how this summer home was next to Bergen and just kind of sits on this little hill that was almost surrounded by water. And so they had this beautiful home, but there was also a little tiny hut there <laughs> that was his composer hut. And it was big enough basically for, I think, maybe a table and a chair or two and an upright piano. And that's where he sat and wrote over the summers mostly. And, you know, Grieg lived from 1843 to 1907. He and his wife had the house built in 1885. And so from 1885 until 1907, he spent an awful lot of time at that home writing an awful lot of music. And the home has a name. It's called Trollhagen. And he immortalized it in one song in particular that we'll hear in just a moment. But it's just a beautiful, I highly encourage you to look it up on Google Satellite just so you can see how just stunning of a setting it must have been or it must be because it's still there and now there's a Greek museum there, of course. Yeah. And you can go see the little hut and stuff.
0: What's cool is there's a um, – there's a it's called the Trolled Salon and it's like you can listen to music, obviously, that's a new – well, it's been around for a while, but I mean they've been constantly making it better and better to listen to chamber music and – how they've designed it is when you're sitting in the audience, you are looking at the stage, and there's a h- huge window that you can see the hut, yeah. where Grieg composed, and then, of course, what Grieg saw. Yeah. And I think that's got to be one of the best places to see from the ground up, to listen to music, yeah basically, where a lot of it was composed. Yeah. And to see what he saw when he was composing, you know, for the most part, granted, things have changed a little bit, but probably not much. Yeah, probably not much. Yeah,
1: (laughs) yeah, and it's just this really wooded area, and like I said, it sits up on this hill, and the hut is adorable. It's just this little tiny red, bright red building, like school red, you know, and just a neat, neat place. So one of the pieces that he, well, let me talk a little bit more about some of the music he wrote while he was there. Grieg wrote a lot of lyric pieces while he was staying at trollhaugen These were his little solo piano pieces that he made dozens of. I mean, there's several volumes that he released of these lyric pieces, and they're very short solo piano pieces that, um, you know, some of them are complicated and difficult to play, but some of them aren't, and people loved that about his music. They also loved that he was definitely a nationalistic Norwegian composer and included lots of Norwegian folk melodies in his music, too. So, we're going to hear a piece that Grieg wrote at his little summer hut, Trollhagen, and it's called Wedding Day at Trollhagen, and he wrote this to help uh, him and his wife celebrate their wedding anniversary. So, this is probably one of Grieg's most famous tunes, and because of its title, Wedding Day at Trollhagen, you do hear this at a lot of weddings, and it's a goodie. And the other fun thing about this tune, too, is that even though he wrote it for solo piano, there are a lot of really fun arrangements for lots of different instrument combinations, but we'll hear the solo piano one. So, this is Wedding Day at Trollhagen, uh, written by Edvard Grieg in 1896, and it appears in his Lyric Pieces, Book Eight.
0: I love you, Madame Grieg. I love us, Madam (laughs) Grieg. (laughs) Like, okay.
1: Come on, man. So cute.
0: So good. And didn't this, I mean, I hear this, and this is pure joy. And granted, that's obviously, it it seemed like they had a a nice marriage. Um, But that aside... It seems like he was very happy there. Like, what yeah. I read is that was like where he wanted to be. Yep. And I just, I think it radiates in this music. You know? Yeah.
1: I think so too. It's very joyful. Yeah. He loved it there. There is a melancholic middle part, which is cool. But why don't yeah. we, can we showcase a little of that? Yeah.
0: Times you did me wrong, <laughs> all the times we had good fights. Here you go, just dynamics are really vivid mm-hmm. to, a, to a relationship, you know.
1: Yeah, hmm. yeah, it's beautiful. How does, it's it, very how, touching.
0: Does it, how does it how does it end? Just like I mean, it started, okay. I love it. Yeah. And it does seem very Norwegian. It yeah. just, there's something about it that it doesn't sound like. I know we're going to talk about Bartok in a little bit, but it doesn't sound, you know, like Central European or Russian or, you know, that's yep. yeah, definitely got a Scandinavian air about yep. it for sure.
1: Yeah. Awesome. We'll hear more Grieg in a minute, but yeah.
0: And I said, I said, um, Salon, and I should have said Trolld Salon. It's S A. I think it's S A L E N. Okay. Just to clarify for the chamber that- music spot, yeah. Correct. Yeah. Okay.
1: So, uh, tell me a story because earlier in the intro, you are talking about how you know it's it kind of is isolating to be out on a farm making wine or out in your distillery out in the middle of nowhere or something. Um, so I am just yeah, I want to hear some of those stories.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I think that you know when you when you get to a place, that all sort of goes away because you have this convivial nature, hopefully, you know, with a winemaker that you get on well, and so you don't think about the fact that you're, whether it's thousands of miles from home or, or hundreds and hundreds of miles away from the nearest bigger city, right? And a lot of people ask about my first trip to the Republic of Georgia and I may have alluded to it a little bit on this show when we highlighted a Georgian wine months ago just about like having almost killed someone's cow or something like that (laughs) but like Just to kind of expand upon how far away and how rustic a place is. And now, you know, the Republic of Georgia is changing. There's a lot of wine tourism. There's a lot of uh, tourism surrounding like extreme sports up in the north um, and close to the Russian border because there's amazing ski resorts and mountain ranges and stuff like that. When I got to Georgia, I've been very adamant for the longest time about not bringing a GPS with me or not ordering a GPS. And, you know, my phone never works when I go anywhere because I don't have it armed for that or whatever. So when I went to Georgia for the first time, this was 2013, I believe, and I remember landing, and it was 4.30 in the morning. The trips always get you there like at an ungodly, awful Mm -hmm. early hour. And the guy at the rental car company spoke English, broken English, but but very understandable, and was like, "Uh, you want a GPS, right? And I was like, no. And he's (laughs) like, you sure? And I was like, I got a map. And he's like, well, we don't provide a map. He, like he wanted to see my map and I pulled out I had a hand-drawn map of how to get from Tbilisi the capital to Signagi which is about a two-hour drive east depending on you know how fast you're driving and he's like well don't say I didn't tell you and I was like okay and I, I get in the car and he's like you want a bigger four by four and I was like no and he's, you know, now I'm thinking he's trying to blow a fast one by me and like charge me more money. He's yeah. like, you're gonna say I should elicit this guy, you know? <laughs> anyway, so I get out and I'm literally, I'm not four miles from the airport, and I make a U-turn in an area where, like, I'm, I'm trying to... I, I prep myself by learning the Georgian alphabet because in a lot of places, you they don't have... It looks kind of like Cyrillic, but mm-hmm. I make this U-turn looking, trying to be like, is that signagi or is that West or is that East? And woo, 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 and I'm like, oh, shit. <laughs> and so I'm now I'm pulled over. It's still dark. It's probably 5.15, so I'd been in the country for less than 45 minutes. The guy's like, he you know, says something like, where are you going? And I, all I knew was where because mm-hmm. I remembered that word. Mm-hmm. And I was like, Bodhishi, Karli, Kartugar. I, I don't remember even what it was, but I knew how to say, I'm sorry, I don't speak Georgian well. And he's like, you're speaking Georgian. And I was like, <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> I was like, you know, n- no, and I didn't want to say I was from the United States. I just was like, you know, I'm trying to get to Signagi. I'm so sorry. And he's like, turn around, fine, and just lets me go. I'm like, wow. Pull over by Georgian police. Literally, I get you know about a quarter of the way to Signagi, and it starts to snow buckets. And now I can't see signs because it's snowing so hard. And I'm like, well, okay. It's, I think I went in February. I'm like, all right. Well, I'm just kind of keep plugging away. I stop for gas. I figure out that I can ask for coffee at a gas station. I don't know how I remembered that, but okay. And then I ask the people, "How do am I on the right track for Sonangi?" They're like, "Yeah, and just make sure that you take a left at this thing, and where there are these fences, and you know, just typical." Yeah. And you know, they're not speaking English. I'm like drawing. I'm like, Mm -hmm. "Oh yeah, okay." Mm -hmm. So I take a left, and I start climbing, and I'm like, "Mm." and it's getting more and more remote as I go, and. I pass villagers that are looking at me like I'm the first person they've ever seen not from their village. And I'm <laughs> yeah. like, this is probably not the right way. I All of a sudden, I almost, out of nowhere, is like, like this huge-ass cow yeah. that I almost hit. <laughs> this grandmother comes running after me like, gonna kill me, because yeah. that's livelihood. Right. I'm like, you know, I'm so sorry. I'm not from here. Okay. Yeah keep driving, and I get to a point where I'm like, all right, there's nowhere else to go. I'm on a cliff, and I'm looking down off the front of my car, and I'm like, well, and I have literally about two feet on either side of me to turn around, and I'm on like a precipice of yeah. sorts. Yeah. And I'm like, well, how did I get myself into this debacle? I can't <laughs> see below. I like It's all covered in clouds. I'm that yeah. high up, yeah. and I have to like reverse in sludge yeah. And do like one inch that way. Like one Austin Powers backing up? Probably. I don't remember that part of the show. Oh, my God, but yeah. But m- most likely. Yeah. Forward one inch, back two inches. Forward yeah. one inch, back two inches. All the while, this woman's like, wah, wah. I can yeah. hear from the bottom of the hill, and I'm like, oh, I got to pass her again. Yeah. I make it. I make it down the hill. I see the villagers an hour later. They're like, <laughs> we knew where you were going, and we yeah. didn't tell you. <laughs> <laughs> and I get to Signagi. It took me like three and a half hours. It should have taken me about two. Yeah. And the first thing I decided to do is get my shoes fixed because okay. i met a cobbler. That's how far away <laughs> this winery is. Um, <laughs> not the winery we are going to drink from, but a winery that I love dearly called Pheasant Steers, who they're in Signagi, um, in a region called Cajeti. But Georgia is a very isolated place. There's a, most of the winemakers are not in the capital, and they're in villages that are like, in order to get from point A to point B, on the way, you'll find one running functional bathroom in six hours. Imagine going from Minneapolis to Chicago with one functioning bathroom for anybody that's driving. Other than that, you're going to stop at a mom and pop shop, get a little something to eat, hopefully not get food poisoning. And then when you do get it, you're going to run into the outhouse so I think we should drink. <laughs> I think that sounds good. So I brought a friend of mine's wine. His name is Zaza and he's got a winery called Disabami and Disabami he's located in Kartli which Kartli is south of Tbilisi and is very close to his winery is very close to the what we know of right now as the birthplace of wine. The, the oldest, I should say the mm-hmm. oldest pips we have for wine in the
1: world and remnants of grapes have yeah. come from this area. Pips, yeah, remnants and skins and stuff. Yep, yeah. and,
0: and an old clay, like Neat. earthenware pot. yeah And Zaza, this is a, not, it's not a rare grape, but it's rarer than the f- very famous Rokatsateli. It's called Hihiwi, and I will write that online. Okay. I'm not going to. Go ahead and spell that for you. No, I will. It's K-H-I-K-H-V-I, Hihiwi. Wow. It's a 2017. And uh, Zaza likes to age his wines, his whites, with a give or take about six months of skin contact. Hihiwi is a wow. white grape. So with that much skin contact, now we're dealing with an orange wine.
1: It's very orange.
0: Mm-hmm. And he's aging it in quaveri, which is the you know the Georgian word for uh, earthenware pot. That's kind of the national word. Then every region has Different words for quevery and different sizes have different names and endings and stuff, but this is about isolation, not vessels. So (laughs) we'll go there in a different episode. Uh, Bottled with no sulfur, um, all native yeast, goes without saying, it's unfiltered, and stuff's insane. I've always loved Zaza's wines. He's a great storyteller, much better storyteller than I am, Um, but scores and pours.
1: Scores and pours.
0: Oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, life in a glass.
1: It smells slide. very lively.
0: Wow! There's like the lightest amount of VA, um, but there's yes. so much bruised stone fruit all over the place, and dried fruits, and dried everything from dried apricots and mangoes, and like all the thing. Like yes, and and tr- and
1: it tastes that way too to me.
0: And like mar- like dried marigolds, like apricotty. Oh yeah, for sure,
1: for sure, apricotty. A little bit of acid in there, just a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> ah. Shall we, Grieg, some more? Yeah. Okay. Just a little but bit. Let's
0: not. Let's not get angry. No, angry. That was a little joke from our bloopers episode, which was like my favorite blooper. Emily sent that to me. We actually should just include it here.
1: There's sad Grieg. There's angry Grieg. You know, angry. <laughs> <laughs> so I mentioned that Grieg didn't write a ton of orchestral music when uh, he, for the last, you know, twenty years or so of his life. But he did write some, and I, I'm i an orchestral music person, so, so I wanted to hear some of his orchestral stuff. Uh, one of the things that he wrote, well, there are a couple of different stories I can tell about it. In one instance, there was a, a conductor named Anton Seidel who took some of Grieg's lyric pieces. Remember I was saying those are like these little solo piano pieces that he wrote. And Anton Seidel took A couple of those, like four or five of them, orchestrated them into something that he called a Norwegian suite. And Grieg was like, "Mm, I don't really like your orchestration, so do you mind if I redo it? And so Grieg basically revised orchestral arranging that someone else did. So there's that story, which is kind of funny. Uh, And then when Grieg did that, he renamed it Lyric Suite instead of Norwegian Suite. So, okay. so uh, we can listen, might as well just listen to one of those yeah. really quick. So yeah, this comes from his Opus 54 lyric pieces, and this is called Norwegian March. Orchestrated by Anton Seidel, but then fixed, quote unquote, by by Grieg in the early 1900s.
0: we know what he fixed? Like, can you hear a before and after, or is there not? Okay.
1: Nope, that uh, Norwegian Suite doesn't exist anymore. Okay. Yeah. Bummer, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Grieg's music, it always sounds like you could just be walking down a meadow lane, watching uh-huh. butterflies and yeah. chasing leprechauns or something. I don't know. I don't mean to mix my country stereotypes, but just beautiful. Gnomes. Gnomes. Trolls. Trolls. Mm-hmm. That's where Trollhaugen got its name, by the way. Uh, the Trolls House. Trolls, right, Trolls Valley. Ah. Yeah. Well okay. yeah. Oh yeah, because
0: so, house is hoose in Norwegian. Yeah, who am I what am I saying? Okay.
1: Yeah, I can't speak to if yeah, I don't know. The Trolls I just,
0: Valley is like kind of the where it gets its name.
1: Yeah, because I guess some children called that valley Valley of the Trolls or something. Oh, okay. And so he named it Trollhaugen. So I don't know if that means Trolls House or if it means Troll Valley. Or- it's
0: so, it's so like, um like rolling and lyric, but also really plush. Like yeah. there's like, without being like uh, busy or loud, like Wagner or something, it's like, yeah. you can tell that it's really rich and. Yeah,
1: yeah, it's. So great, so pretty. I love Grieg, um, and then we'll just hear one more, and then we can move on to Bartok in a moment. But um, uh, one of the purely orchestral pieces that uh, that Grieg wrote while he was up at Trollhagen is his Symphonic Dances, and he wrote four of these. They're based off of Norwegian melodies. Again, he's harvesting. You know, he really was kind of an ethnomusicologist in his own way, harvesting uh, melodies from the folk tradition of Norway and orchestrating them. So we'll listen to the num- the third of these uh, symphonic dances by Greek. And one thing to just quick mention, uh, as Emily's setting up the
0: music, I found a quote in a couple different places where in his small little cabin, you know, he had his desk and the piano and whatever. And it mm-hmm. said, he wrote it, he left a note every time he left there that said, if any wouldn't." breaks in, please leave the scores since they do not have value to anyone other than Edvard Grieg, period. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, okay. It's very
1: sweet. Because, of so course, right. that's exactly why I would break into that hut would be to steal <laughs> all the scores. Or just to
0: see him, you <laughs> yeah, know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Change a note. He'd probably know right away.
1: And he was famous by then, too. I mean, people would come by and pester him sometimes not I don't mean that in a you know but they would stop by and just talk to the famous Edvard Grieg and yeah so I love that he left that note for people it's adorable here's this symphonic dance this is the third third of four
0: There's all this like stuff happening down low and it's just like keeping everything up top, able to like butterflies to like <laughs> fly around because everything's yeah. like oh
1: yes. Anyway, it's so good.
0: Yeah. It's so pretty. I love how I just, he's one of my favorite composers. I think whenever I listen to him, it evokes the countryside without you really having to try too hard. And it's also as serious and complex as it is exciting to listen to. And, you know, yes, there are some jovial sides to his music and some more melancholic sides to certain pieces, but in the end, they maybe, but just evokes right now, I think the world needs some hope and it sounds like light at the end of the tunnel, happier times ahead, happy times now, you know, I don't know. Yeah, just, I agree.
1: It's nice. It's fulfilling music and it's joyful.
0: One thing I think about just to flip-flop, because with Georgian wine, I feel Both things, I feel whenever I taste it, there is an element of, like, strife and hardship, and I can't get over that. You know, the country of Georgia has just seen so many, you know, whether it's occupation from the Mongols, the Russians, the Turks, you name it. Anybody that's been around has wanted the Georgians' land for themselves because it is such a piece of, like, heaven. I mean, in such a small place you have the ability to grow like tropical fruits and then continental and g- fruits you can grow apples and you can grow kiwi you can grow kiwis you know you can grow coffee and tobacco but you can also grow olives for all of, like mediterranean and you can go skiing and go ski- yeah it's 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 it's, it's wow. the most diverse cuisine and that i've and i've been to you know india and i've been to latin america and i you know it's the mm-hmm. most Absurd, the, di- the diversity, <laughs> but um, when I taste this, isn't it incredible how, I mean, we mostly focus on dry wines on the show, but the tannin just emphasizes its dryness. Like yeah. there's just, there's negative amounts of residual sugar.
1: Yeah. This is like, this could be like a red wine almost. I mean, it's just, mm-hmm. it's intense. Is the tannin? The super tannic.
0: Hihiwi has a little bit more of a plumper nature than ricazzatelli. And so it. for those of you who have had Georgian ricazzatelli with skin contact, also a white grape, of course, Hihiwi is like juicier and plumper, and it does have naturally higher sugar content, and so you can just taste. It's acidic, but it isn't as bracing as ricazzatelli. And a lot of times Hihiwi was found interplanted purposefully in a vineyard, a lot of Russians, actually, that, that started to monopolize vineyards were like, plant Hihiwi alongside a different grape varietal. I think it was either Mutswane, or no, it might have been Ricatsatelle. Plant alongside that, and could have even been Chinuri. I can't remember off the top of my head. But <laughs> plant alongside of it so that it can balance in the cellar. It can kind of make this more homogenous. Oh, interesting. Plump. So they would mix those. Acid, yeah. Okay, yep. fun. Um, but uh, this is 100% Hihiwi. It is 100 percent. Yeah, the the V is pronounced kind of as a W in Georgian. Another story I want to tell because it's so ridiculous and it's there's a monument that's up for UNESCO heritage, a site that is called Vardzia, and it's southwestern Georgia. It's quite close to the Turkish border, uh, with the Republic of Georgia, and it's in it's a monastic set of caves. That are like encrusted in the Eruscheti Mountains, and this should take three and a half to four and a half hours to get there. Okay, you're going about 250 to 300 kilometers. And I was in the car with Tom Schobruk of Schobruk Winery and Anton von Clapper from Lucy Margot Wines. We decide to rent a car and to go, and we're we're with a map and a GPS.
1: Oh, so you got both covered. We got both unquote. covered.
0: And Tom is like, you know, I think we can go this way. We just gotta go up and over this little mountain and then we're clear and it'll be like a more picturesque and the GPS says to go this way. And Anton and I are kinda looking at the map and you know, everybody you know, we were just like, Well, why don't we follow the GPS because The guy gave me on this different trip, gave me a four by four for free because he knew where we were going. Okay. And I like got it paying cash from a guy on a kind of bad area of Tbilisi. And he was like, Yeah, you know, he just showed up with this four by four. I'm like, dude, I rented like a little sedan. And he's Mm -hmm. like, I saw where you're going. I brought this for you. Give me cash. Don't ruin it. I was like, okay. <laughs> and he gave me a cell phone. He's like, oh. call me with this cell phone when you're, you know, with it. I mean, it was, it's like great. <laughs> it's Republic yeah. of Georgia. There's like Jill on the wine trip by herself <laughs> just hanging out. Anyway, so we decide to go this way that Tom says, you know, the GPS says to go this way. Mm-hmm. And we end up at the top of a mountain that's really rugged and there's, it's not a two-lane and now it's gravel. And we okay. have like, we have three quarters of our trip left. And I'm like, this is, guys, should we turn around? No, no. And, and then they're like, should we turn around? And I'm like, no, we're already this far. Well, we end up getting pulled over by the police at the top of a pass who they're like, what are you doing here? And I, of course, am like, Bodishi, Carly Kartugar, Aritsi, or something like. I don't speak. Georg-. He's like, you're speaking Georgian. Anton's like, give him your fucking passport. I'm like, <laughs> he's like, <laughs> so we have Australian and American passports happening. This guy's like, what are you doing up here? We're like, we're here for wine. He's like, there aren't any grapes up here. Go away. And wow. this was after he had us up there with his rifle for. Like twenty five minutes. Well, he's in. And it's now. It's snowing, spitting rain. Whatever. It's in the middle of May. I think I that was the last time. This is on my second trip. So he says, "Go back, but don't go the way you came because you can't get down there because now there's you can't pass because it's snowed like six feet since you just were like, <laughs> what? No, it couldn't. It? No, whatever. So now we're on our way down the other side of the hill, and there's a snowplow coming towards me, and that snowplow is like as wide as our booth. We're like, where do, where do I go? I can't go backwards. And this, and this, 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 the guy just stopped and looked at us and was like, you gotta do something. (laughs) So we like hugged and he wouldn't let us go close to the mountain because that's, he's not gonna, so we like, Trying to go around the plow and there's really no room. And I go, guys, I don't know why this came to me because I'm the glass is always half full in my world. I go, I wonder what it looks like. Like when you're if if there is a heaven or if you are about to die or whatever. I wonder what it looks like. And Anton goes, just look to your left. (laughs) And all you can see is like it's all foggy and you can't see the ground. Yeah. So you can only see the side. There's no side of my vehicle. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So we're just like Drive forward and don't look, basically. Yeah. yeah, and so we, you know, we get down, we get past this, and all of a sudden there's this clearing, and there's there's we see beautiful lake in the distance. Nice. Meanwhile, we're still in an area where now I have to pee. i we and I've been like really yeah. testing the shocks on this car because now there are, we drove. There was a time where we drove like 90 miles with pot, of potholes. Wow. So we literally wow. went like you know that took two hours in and of itself. So Anton's, I'm just like, Anton, I love you long time, buddy. I'm just going to get outside and go to the bathroom. Yeah. And he's like, oh, we, we'll stay in the car. That's no problem. I'm pissing into the wind <laughs> in the back of the car. I'm like, what is this? i like, what are we doing, guys? We we enter into this village. Everyone's looking at us again. Yeah. Like they've never seen anyone not from their village. Everybody's burning shit to keep themselves warm because it was cold in this village. And all of a sudden, we get into a clearing. We almost get to the Turkish border, have to turn around, and we, get, we find this clearing, and there is Vardzia.
1: The we vineyard?
0: Were, Vardzia, no, the, the monastic caves. Oh, 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 and we yeah. We're like, wow, this is so incredible. And here there are all these old terraces that are ancient vineyards that are now you know, grown over, but you can see where that was happening, and now they're being rehabilitated by a lot of people that are wanting to, like, re-enliven where old Georgian viticulture took place. It was really great. Then after this arduous drive, Anton, Tom, and I go and explore Vardzia, and they're old-school, like, where they used to ferment wine and little tunnels where wine would flow down the stairs... And there would be the stairway for people to walk, and then there'd be the path for wine to run alongside the stairway, nice from one level to the other. I, get, I get, just look up Vardzia in the Republic of Georgia, and you'll just you won't believe there's still supposedly five monks that live there. But it was um, excavated in like around the twelve hundreds in the Golden Age of Queen Tamar of Georgia, and you know when the Ottoman Empire came to ransack all that that kind of went to hell. But getting anywhere in Georgia is remote. That's all <laughs> I'll say about Georgia, um, unless we talk a little bit more about the wine, but we'll get to a couple other places uh, in, in my next little snippet.
1: Now let's do some Bartok. Bela Bartok, Hungarian composer, came to the U.S. in the very end of his life. And that honestly didn't go very well. A lot of people here, when he came here, didn't know who he was. And this was in the 40s, 1940s. And so he he just had trouble making any money. And he got help by some people who commissioned music from him, who knew of him. And so to help him financially, they're like, here, write us this piece. We'll give you this many thousand dollars. And helped him to kind of eke through the last few years of his life. Bartok also was very ill the last few years of his life. He had leukemia. And his doctor's prescribed to him to leave new york city where he was and go upstate and stay where the air is clean and the water runs clean and you know so he goes up to the adirondack mountains and he goes to saranac lake and the first two years he went up there was 1943 and 1944 and he stayed at a cottage owned by a woman named margaret sageman at that cabin he wrote his Concerto for Orchestra, which is arguably his most popular piece. It's a phenomenal piece of music, Concerto for Orchestra. The last year that he was alive, 1945, he stayed at a cabin on Riverside Drive, same lake up in the Adirondacks, Saranac Lake. And at that cabin, which was super rustic, like... You're heating the water for a bath kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And he didn't even have a piano up there. He just had paper, manuscript paper, and like a pencil and a pen. And that was it. But he loved it, didn't he? He loved loved it. it. Yes, he loved it. And up in that little tiny cabin, he wrote the last two pieces that he wrote in, in his life, one of which was his third piano concerto, which he completed all but the last 17 measures of and then he also wrote his viola concerto which was much less complete and was kind of assembled by his friends after he died so there's a couple different versions of that viola concerto as a result but the piano concerto number 3 being largely completed has been pretty much left that way and his friend Tibor Shirley completed those last 17 bars for Bartok and and that's how we have the third piano concerto so Let's hear some. Bartok wrote this for his wife as a surprise birthday present. Just, happy birthday, here's a piano concerto. Because his wife, Dita, was a famous concert pianist. After Bartok died, she didn't play very much. Uh, She didn't play at all for a while. She didn't tour at all or play publicly at all, but Mm -hmm. she did eventually. But in any event, this was for her, which is very sweet.
0: Does it... it cool to you how it, I mean, you listen to this and it doesn't sound it has a lot of inflection that's Central European, you know, there you can tell that it's not, we'll say, Norwegian just because we yeah. just listen to it, to Greek, but is there something especially about that opening that is this bucolic or this yeah. idyllic
1: sort of Yeah, there is a
0: nature element that is kind of audible
1: or is that just yeah, I, th- I think so. Okay. I mean, gonna, we was, know
0: that, right? There's the context we've talked about that mm-hmm. also helps that. You wonder if we would glean that if we didn't know.
1: You know? Yeah, I know. I don't know that I would. I mean, you certainly, by, with the opening of this particular concerto, I find the lyricism really striking at the beginning. It's just so beautifully lyrical. Mm-hmm. And the second movement in particular is just stunningly gorgeous. So there's there's a little bit more fun and jolliness in the third movement, I'd say. There's only three movements, uh, as is typical with a concerto. So uh, yeah, I, I think when you have that context, you can be like, oh yeah, I could totally see that. The thing that just gets me is that he didn't have a piano up there. So he's just literally writing all this out of his head. And that,
0: To me, that's
1: that's like baller, right? (laughs) You know what I mean? Like even Grieg had a little piano. But I mean, Bartok, I mean, and in Grieg's situation, Grieg didn't live in his composer hut. He lived in a nice house up the hill. He just had his little tiny composing hut that he would visit during the day. But Bartok and his wife literally lived in this super rustic cabin that had like a couple of cots and, you know, water you had to heat for your food and firewood to stay warm and... Yeah, so it's a cool. very different situation, but mm-hmm. um but, yeah, Bartok loved it. Mm-hmm. He was very happy there, according to his son.
0: wanted to just very briefly talk about, because it's so fresh in my mind, um, some friends of mine, uh, Nate and Tracy, so they're owners of Keepsake Cidery down in Dundas, Minnesota, which is like about an hour or, or a little less um, south of, of Minneapolis. And I mentioned them because I wasn't planning on it. But, you know, I was just going to kind of focus on a couple Georgian stories, maybe a Spanish story. But As I was driving down there yesterday, I realized how important it is for people to have access to these places, right? Whether it's, you know, being able to get to Trollhagen, right? Yeah. Trollhagen to be able to visit Grieg's house and hut and, you know, hopefully listen to some music, but to see it. And yeah, stop by the gift shop, buy something. (laughs) But, you know, at least to give you more context for what writing that music is like in that space, right? And Mm -hmm. there's so many winemakers that they're and cideries and just in even breweries for that matter that are hard to get to, that we don't get to experience their the fruits of their labor, pun intended, on site. And when we do, a lot of times they're, I mean I'll just say it, like conventionally made industrial, and you're more there for the ambiance than you are for the product itself, right? Being true to place. And so I brought today a cider that Nate was very sweet to give me a couple of the bottles that were left um, from our tasting. And one is called the River Valley Reserve. And it's a cider that's put together from all local Minnesota apples, but then they're all grown in the River Valley, Cannon River Valley. And so we're trying to be hyper-local. And we tasted that alongside, like, you know, they're Single orchard, they're this, that. And it's, like, incredible that terroir of apples exists in Minnesota. Like, we just don't have anybody doing that. Yeah. And whenever I meet with them, we always have a great time. Taste cider. I get to know them better. Mm-hmm. It's always refreshing to be on their farm and their orchard. But what's interesting is is that other people, because when I go there, you know, I, there are people there that are enjoying toasties and enjoying music and depending on the time of year, they're enjoying this product just like you could at Trollhag and you're listening while you're using your other senses. yeah. And I think it's as much as I love the idea of like an urban winery or I love going and visiting Zaza or, you know, going out in the middle of nowhere to find a winemaker, in the end, then I'm the storyteller and the winemaker is the storyteller separately, and we do that job together. You know, we require each other. Whereas somewhere like keepsake, it's still you—you got to work to get there, but you're able to enjoy something on site to to realize where it comes from. And you—you you know, I mean you can walk right down and walk right into the orchard and eat apples off the tree and. And it's all, all organic farming. Um, they do all native yeast to ferment their cider. They're the only ones doing, you know, no sulfur added to their ciders. Most of the carbonation is, is not forced carb. It's natural carbonation unless there's something on tap. So, yeah, it's just awesome. Let's taste it. Let's do it. So, granted, we're at the, we're at the end of the bottle, right? So, there's some sediment um, in here, which I love. But I get sick of, you know, I taste so much wine that I love tasting wine. But when I, I there are times where I'm like, man, I really don't want that style, or I don't want rosé, or I want want something higher in alcohol. Nate and Tracy, thank you because I'm never sick of drinking your cider. <laughs> like it always tastes so good. So, cheers to keepsake, keepsake apple juice. That is hard. That's all I need. I know, and it had a little more effervescence yesterday. But what I love is, and you know, most of the friends that know me and the world of wine and sparkling wine know that I think if you can't drink a sparkling wine still, the base product is not good. You know, you want to be able to, the bubbles should be the, just the icing on the cake, if you will. And so I love that when they are ciders, yes, of course, the bubbles in it make that lively and, but you can drink them just as is. What do you think?
1: I think it's delicious.
0: Just tannic enough, just Mm. acidic enough. Yeah. And this is from 20... Uh, this is from 2019's Apples. Okay. So they usually let things rest for a good year to to two years, depending on when Nate thinks it's ready to be released. And okay. they always let everybody, um, in, including, of course, Tracy, his his partner um, in, in both life and in the cidery, to decide and, and their employees, they all taste and they're like, what do we think? You know, do we this or that? Is it ready yet or not? I wonder if you were a winemaker like a friend of mine, Chris Brockway who makes Brock Sellers out mm-hmm. of Berkeley. There are people even here in Stillwater, Minnesota. They have a winery in the middle of Stillwater, but the grapes are miles away, if not hundreds of miles. If not, they're getting California grapes, right? Like how, mm-hmm. when you're tied to land, like how much closer is that product to resembling its true, you know, field nature mm-hmm. when it's, we'll say, harvested like on site or almost on site as opposed, as opposed to being, you know, needed to be moved 50, 100, 150, 200 miles plus. I don't know. What do you think?
1: Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think it's maybe perhaps more meaningful to, if I, if I personally were a winemaker, I would want to be out in the field. I wouldn't want personally to have an urban winery, I don't know. That's just me though.
0: But then you wonder like what if you are great at making wine and selling wine,
1: mm-hmm. but you're
0: not really you aren't a viticulturist. You didn't you well, didn't study obviously grapes in that or, case. Yeah. You know, it, or yeah. or like people that they you know, they might have a small vineyard, they
1: mm-hmm. might have
0: a winery, but then they have to buy grapes to supplement to like flesh out things because right, they yeah. can't afford or they don't have enough space for
1: mm-hmm. um,
0: that's a maybe a whole other conversation for a different episode, but Mm -hmm. do we have time for one more Bartok?
1: Sure. I will just say that you can visit that Riverside Drive cabin where Bartok lived for that one summer, and it's been, I think, kind of saved. I think it was on the verge of collapse and such, but it's been, I believe, saved and renovated to a certain extent, and you can go visit the Bartok cabin, as it's called now, on Riverside Drive on Saranac Lake in the Adirondack Mountains in New York. How cool is that? By appointment only. Exactly. By appointment only. Check in
0: first. <laughs> Especially now.
1: Especially now in COVID times. But, um, but yeah, really, really neat stuff. So we might as well just listen to on, on our way out. We'll hear just a tiny bit of the viola, viola concerto that Bartok also wrote in that very rustic cabin in upstate New York in 1945. <laughs>
0: Thing I wanted to mention about you know winemakers and vineyards they're working with, if they are the ones farming them themselves, mm-hmm. is that you know when when I go to visit, uh, like last summer, I went and visited this this producer called Bodegas Pigar, in there in Utiel Requena, far eastern Spain. We're in Paella country, Valencia, and you know I I met them at their winery, which was the size of. Like three times the size of our booth, so very small. (laughs) But then they had, they were like, well, let's go to a vineyard, half hour drive. Let's go to another vineyard, 10 minute drive. Let's go to another vineyard, 25 minute drive. So, like, when, and they're up and down and through the mountains and around the bend and across a little river, and then there's a little vineyard. And so, when you're getting into a lot of these really cool, really small natural winemakers, I mean, their vineyards are like Zaza's got just over a hectare. He's got a hectare, you know, and that may have changed since I visited him. He's got a little more than that now, but even if he's got five, yeah. five hectares, very you know, tiny. that's like so small. So, and they're in, and when they are really in the middle of nowhere, it, you know, who, who found that? For them, did they always know about it? Sometimes it's like it's been in their family for generations, and other times they have a neighbor who's like, "Listen, man, I'm 90 years old and I can't farm this anymore. Can you farm it for me? And then I'll I'll give it to you. I'll give you all the fruit. Just give me you know a case of wine from it. And it's awesome that story of what happens in isolation. Things that a lot of us don't know is happening for these growers that are making just awesome, very of a place. Wine that's very humble and yet, um, yeah, it's just so terroir driven. It's like almost puts the word terroir as hoity toity as we know it to shame. <laughs>
1: Thank you for listening to Scores and Pores with Jill Mott and Emily Reese. You can find links and information about this episode at patreon.com slash pores and Instagram at scoresandpores. Also, I'll post pictures of the composer huts that we talked about.
0: If you like the show, consider making a financial contribution to patreon.com slash pores because it is not cheap
1: to put on this podcast. Edited by Emily Reese and Jill Mott. Our producer is Sam Keenan. Scores and Pores is a production of June Media, Inc.